Happy Friday, everybody. Oh, it's okay. It's actually Friday. There you go. Yeah, I promise not to change the rules on you. Today is Friday. Um, I'm Jeff. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, nice to kind of meet you. But it would be cool to actually meet you if we haven't met. So let's hang out sometime, chat. That'd be cool. Um, and uh, you have, have caught us in the middle of this this study that we're doing. We, t- we, talked, we heard about uh, this Colossians challenge that we're doing as a, as a community. We're trying to memorize a chunk of, the, of this letter that we're studying because we actually think it helps if you can have it in your head already. You can like chew on it and remember it and kind of regurgitate it in your mind and it actually affects your heart and your emotions and it's great. Memorization is super helpful, so we're doing that. Um, but uh, every week we spend some, a little bit of time in the Bible and uh, tonight and this whole quarter... We're looking at uh, a particular letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a new Jesus community in the city of Colossae. That's why the book that we're studying is called Colossians. It's not the most creative title, but it gets the job done, right? Um, And it's a great letter for us to study because there are a lot of parallels between the spiritual climate um, at Western and the spiritual climate back at Colossae in in these early days. Um. And even though, uh, well, let me, let me back that up a little bit. It's, 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 it's kind of crazy to say because the cultures are so different, but there's some basic things that they have in common. The Colossian community, for example, like us, was a fairly young community of faith. They had just recently been introduced to Jesus and just started following him. And even though CCF has been around for like 45 years, and some of us are older than you, present, um, many of you are actually fairly young in your faith. And that's mostly just because of your age, which makes total sense. Some of you have been following Jesus for like less than a year, right? Hallelujah. But, uh, but even those of us who might have like grown up following Jesus, like we're kind of raised with this stuff, even you are just recently deciding for yourselves as adults whether or not you want to follow him, right? So maybe you've been walking with him for a few years as like independent adults, like this is my thing now, this isn't just what I was raised with. And some of you here tonight are in that really exciting place of just checking Jesus out. And we're really glad you're here. This is a great place to do that. CCF is a great place to get your questions answered and to meet Jesus. So what that means is, for us, that most of our CCF community is kind of just starting out on this idea of living your whole life following Jesus. And I think that's fantastic. Being young and new to following Jesus for yourself means that you guys and gals are excited. You are vibrant You're on mission, reaching out to the people around you. It's part of why I love college ministry. I love my job. I think I have a pretty cool one. And all of you should pray and ask Jesus if he wants you to do the same thing. And we can talk about it together. That'd be great. But uh, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I really like my job is you all. You folks stir my faith. My soul is actually better for, for, for doing faith with younger folks than me. It's so great. So great for my heart and for my soul. So I find young faith to be very exciting, very stimulating to be around. And at the same time, young faith is also vulnerable, isn't it? Like all, like, the, you know, I love spring, all the young plants emerging this spring. Their, their roots are just kind of starting to grow. They are, they're gaining strength and reaching deeper into the soil, but those are new roots, right? And they're not that deep yet. 
Young faith is like that. Your spiritual roots are just starting out. And hallelujah, they're starting to reach, reach deeper and deeper into what it means to follow Jesus. Because this is a critical phase for you guys. Super important time of your life. And under the pressure of other competing truths, the question you have to answer is, will your roots grow down deep and solid and mature, or will the surrounding culture tug you out of the soil that you're just getting to know? This was a really important question back in the first century, back when the, the, uh, the letter to the, the, the Colossians was written for the first time. Um, because back then, every Christian was a brand new one, Right? The whole movement was just starting. So no matter how old you were, you were new. Everything was just getting started. So Paul writes a, a letter to this, uh, these young Jesus followers in the small city of Colossae to help them understand what it means to put down good, uh, thickening, stabilizing roots as followers of Jesus. That's why he writes this letter. Because in the city of Colossae, just like in the city of Bellingham, We've got a map there for you. That's the red arrow. That's the city we're talking about. That's where the letter was sent to. There were competing versions of what's true about faith, about spirituality, about God. And it's not so much that these ideas were competing with each other as truths, but more that the Colossians, a lot like us in Bellingham, were tempted to accept all of them as potentially true. The popular belief in Colossae was that we get to treat our spiritual convictions kind of like a salad bar. You've got your different kind of lettuce, you've got your varieties of veggies, some different dressings, other toppings, some of them delicious, some of them disgusting. I don't know why you put that stuff on your salads if you want that. I'm not going to mention what that is, but some of that stuff is nasty. And when you, but when you look at the salad bar options, for the most part, everything kind of looks and appears fairly healthy. It's pretty healthy stuff, generally a salad. You've got some religions that pray. You've got other spiritual paths that have sacred texts. Uh, you've got some spiritualities with some spiritual heroes. So, you know, you look at the kind of the, the religious spiritual landscape. You, yeah, there's a lot of, of healthy options out there. So, in a sense, I guess there's, there's nothing wrong with believing whatever bits and pieces of different religions and spiritualities that I want to and building my own healthy religious spiritual bowl of truth. Does that sound familiar? That was the Colossian culture, and it's a lot like ours. So the question that we're asking this quarter, and the question that Paul is answering in this letter to these young Bellingham-like Colossians, is what does it look like to be rooted in Christ? What does it look like to put down the deep roots in the truth as a community that is firmly planted Amidst cultural pressures to conform to kind of a salad bar spirituality. And we saw last week that Paul's first answer to that question, and by the way, if you missed last week's intro to this series, you got to go online and listen to David Nebel bring the thunder. It was so good. Oh, blessed. It was, it, you got to do it. Enough said. CCFMinistry.com. Go find it. David will bless your soul because the word in his speaking of it is a blessing. So what we saw last week, some of the stuff David talked about last week, is that Paul's first answer to that question is that a rooted life is a... Hey, the rhyme worked. A rooted life is a fruited life. In other words, a rooted life in Jesus is marked by the evidence, the fruit, the growth of faith, hope, and love. Paul's three favorite virtues. 
Faith, hope, and love. And that's what Paul prays for them in that opening passage in the letter, right? He prays for their faith, their hope, and their love. Now, in tonight's text, after sharing with the Colossian community how he's praying for them, Paul explains further what it means to be rooted in Christ. So I want to pray for ourselves, and then we'll join Paul in the text, okay? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as we turn into the, the specific words in the Bible, that these words come alive for us, that Jesus, you tend to make these words lift off the page to us and zap our hearts in a way that only you can do. So Lord, I'm counting on you to join us tonight. I'm counting on you to make the important things stick in our hearts and our minds tonight. And I just thank you that you are really excited to tell us the truth through your word. And we love you. We love you so much. Thanks for being with us, Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen. Now, um, if we keep in our minds that the Colossians were tempted to believe in this salad bar approach to spirituality and to religion and to, to the, their sort of spiritual path, then it makes perfect sense that right after his prayer, at the beginning of this letter, that Paul would open his explanation of what it means to be a rooted, mature, stable Christian community with an epic anthem about Jesus. And it is great. This, this text, you should go and stand on a mountainside and read this text to the valleys. It preaches itself. It's one of the most beautiful sections of scripture, and I'm excited to talk about it. Um, it's this epic anthem. The Colossians were tempted to view Jesus as, as, as kind of one of the gods, like a god among gods, or like a demigod. That was kind of their, their Colossian culture. Kind of like a, a, a mediocre god among many. That's what the Colossians were tempted to kind of see Jesus as from the culture around them. Kind of like one cool option among many, but certainly not supreme. That sounds like Western too, right? That's what we have to watch out for in our own lives if we've decided to follow Jesus. If we're not careful, then we can start treating Jesus like a demigod. Just one great spiritual figure among a lot of great characters, offering an interesting way to fix a broken world. But Paul disagrees. In fact, he's very quick to correct that. That's where he starts. And to emphasize the uniqueness of Jesus. Here's what he writes. Okay, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before everything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. One of the first things that I really appreciate about this anthem that Paul writes about who Jesus is, is that Paul admits that God is hard to see. I'm really glad about that. He's, he's in fact invisible. And isn't that just an honest accounting of what it's like to relate with God? I find the Bible to be an extremely practical book. Do any of you struggle with that? Hello. Do any of you struggle? I do. I certainly do. We're tired today. It's okay. I am too. Sometimes I just wish that God would just tangibly show up and explain things to me. You know what I mean? Boy. But I find it comforting in this letter that we see a man whose relationship with God has done so much to shape the life of the church for centuries. 
he can so readily admit, yeah, he's invisible. And Paul recognizes this conundrum we face. But that's why he brings Jesus into it. Jesus did exactly what so many of us long for. Jesus is the God who showed up. In our world, in real time, that's what Paul's getting at. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus, because Jesus is the exact representation of God in the world, Paul says. People could say to those original disciples, show me your God, and they could point across the street and say, he's over there. (laughs) I like Paul's use of the word image, too, because he's drawing on this idea of a mirror. It's as if God is around a corner. You're on a building, there's a corner, and God's on the other side of the corner. And because he's around the corner, we can't see him. It's not that he's not real. It's just that we can't see him. And Jesus functions like a mirror that helps us see around the corner so that we know exactly what God is like. And that makes sense for what Paul says next. In this text, in this, in this beginning to his anthem, this same Jesus both created and is in charge of every single thing that exists. This dusty rabbi from Nazareth that Paul is talking about is the same one who is responsible for inventing dust. If Jesus was the exact representation of God on the earth, then he's also the exact representation of the creator, active and responsible for all creation. Notice too how Paul mentions those thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Paul does this on purpose. Paul's a great pastor. He's a great letter-writing, pastoring, disciple-maker. It's a pretty interesting list, considering that Paul is writing to a church that is tempted to worship the elemental spirits and demigods in the universe, right? Paul is directly addressing what they're struggling with. And think of that would have done for them. As, as a Colossian, hearing this, believing what you believe, and getting this letter. These spirits and demigods that they thought ruled the universe, that they were tempted to be afraid of. For Paul to say, nah, those things are nothing compared to Jesus. In fact, if they exist, it's because Jesus made them, and he rules them. Paul's pretty effective at deflating the competition, don't you think? Paul's not interested in a comparative analysis of Jesus' competitors. He says Jesus is over it all. He's the supreme being of the universe. He's on top. And that's true whether we agree or not, Paul would say. The question for us is, what are we going to do about that? Is Jesus simply an impressive option among many options? What influences you? What shapes what you believe? And where is Jesus in all that? See, if if my understanding of Jesus is small, then the things that compete for my allegiance to him are going to be evenly matched in my mind. Because Jesus ends up being just one helpful influencer among many. The question for us is, will you and I recognize him as the supreme being in all the universe and in our own lives? Will you let him rule you? Or are there other things, including maybe yourself, still calling the shots in your life? That's what Paul's asking. After that, he moves on in his epic anthem. From the language of creation, Paul moves to the language of his new creation community. Verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. 
In the midst of the universe Jesus is in charge over, he has defibrillated into life a new version of humanity. And he calls this new community, he calls us the church. And Paul uses one of his favorite analogies for a Jesus community, the human body. If you want a more detailed description of what Paul means when he talks about the community of God's new people being a body, go to 1 Corinthians 12. It's another letter he wrote in the New Testament again. You can find it. Chapter 12 goes into much more detail than he does here. But here his point is to emphasize Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. Think about what a head does for our bodies. It's, uh, it's the control tower for all movement, right? Uh, it's the center of our thought and willpower. The head's the leader of this machine that we call the human body. It tells my hands to move around. And if everything work, is working properly, they do. Praise God. You ever notice? I was always fascinated as a kid. As I, I like to work with like little like robots and Legos and stuff like that. I was always amazed at how when I put my hands up to my own ears... They never squeak. I know this looks really weird, but isn't that so interesting? That's how meticulously made this. That's how, it's incredible. And my, 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 my head, the head of my body, is, is able to do all these intricate things, tell my fingers to do all these amazing things. It's crazy. We want the, Jesus to be the head of our body, CCF. That's who we strive to have him be at CCF. We want him to be the visionary, the director, the key strategist, and every one of us are simply his implementers, right? That's what we want to be. He tells us how to live. He teaches us how to treat each other. He gives us his power and direction for how to love each other and boldness and creativity to invite those who aren't yet in his body to get surgically added. He kicked off this whole movement in the first place. He's the beginning, he's the original, and he gives us our template for how this new humanity is supposed to live together. And look at the ultimate mark in this text. Look at the ultimate mark of this renewed way of being human. From the text, what is the crowning difference between who we used to be and who we are now as human beings if we have attached ourselves to Jesus? The answer is that death is no longer the end of our story. Because it wasn't the end of his. Jesus was the first one to go through what will one day be the norm for all God's people. The resurrection. We just celebrated Easter on the church calendar. The last Sunday of spring break. Which means that death is not permanent for anyone who calls Jesus Lord and Savior of their lives. Which means that if the worst and sickest form of corruption in the human experience. That's what death is. Death is the worst and sickest form of the corruption that's got us. If that's been beat, then what can't Jesus handle? If death has been overmatched, then what can't he take care of? What many versions of death? We, there, are, there are many versions of death all around us all the time, even in our own lives, like pain or loneliness or fear or sickness or heartache or abuse. Those are all things that suck life away, right? But what many deaths that we experience in the here and now are outside of his ability to resurrect? What can't Jesus handle for you and for me? If he managed death itself, 
There is nothing he cannot manage, both now and forever. Now, why all, why all this description? Why does Paul take precious parchment space in the ancient world? Because that's what a letter would have been. It would have been on parchment, and you would have made sure to make every word count, because it's got to get there. You can't just save it and send it later. This is a, this is, this is a papyrus thing. You've got to get there. Precious space and ink. Why would he have taken this space to detail out just how supreme Christ is? It's because of what comes next. The next part of his anthem. Verse 19. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And this is not just the Colossians story. This is my story. This is our story. Once you and I were far away from God. We were his enemies because of our evil behavior. Every single person in here has done things, some of us, terrible things to make God our enemy. And why shouldn't those things make us his enemy? Ask any parent, what's the fastest way to get on his or her bad side? And they will tell you, mess with my kids. You do that, we're going to have words. Scripture says that human beings are made in the image of God. We are God's lookalikes. Just like children look like their parents, human beings are God's kids. But just look at the things that we do to each other. Think about how our first instinct is so often to preserve ourselves, to make sure that we're okay. Even toward the people we love. Think of how many times we use God's other lookalikes, his image bearers, his kids, for our own satisfaction. The way we fool around with each other sexually. The way we laugh at other people so we feel better about ourselves. The way we twist the truth to make ourselves look better. Or maybe you have experienced that done to you. Of course, people harmers would be his enemies. That's what our choices have earned. But Paul's next line is for us too. For everyone who admits we're sick and in need of forgiveness and who long to be close to God and to not be his enemies anymore, verse 22 says, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him with a single, without a single fault. That is why Jesus died. A few decades before this letter was written, Jesus offered himself to be executed in the place of the Colossians and in the place of us and in the place of all who will willingly accept it. And if Jesus is the exact representation of God in the world, then what God actually did was to allow the full consequences of my and your choices that made us his enemies to land on himself. What other God is like this? If we are going to be rooted in Jesus while we are pressed 
to welcome other competing spiritualities and morals and influences to get, to get mixed in. We have to understand that there is no other God like this. There is a uniqueness to Jesus that is unlike anything else out there. The God of the Bible, Jesus, God with us, would rather be tortured to death himself than see you or me come to any permanent harm. The great difference between the God of the Bible and every other religious and spiritual worldview that I have come across is that everything else says you have to do all this stuff before you can get to God. But the God who introduces himself to us in Christ says you could never do enough, so I will get to you. Every other religious worldview is humans trying to make things right in the world and in themselves by themselves. But God says you could never do enough. I have to do it for you. Even death. I have to do that for you. Because you can't fix it. I can't. God's competition is nothing like him. No other God would rather die for you than have you be his enemy. This is the truth that we must root ourselves in amidst competing spiritualities and influences. That's what Paul says next to the Colossians. But, in verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. This good news has been preached all over the world. Still is, by the way. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. For those of us who already consider ourselves to be Jesus followers, let's not drift. We need to keep believing it. We need to stand firmly in it. Paul wouldn't need to say stand firm if there wasn't some pressure not to. He wouldn't need to say that if there, was some, if there wasn't some other pull on their young, emerging roots that threatened to uproot them from the good news. I know there's pressure to accept everybody's truth as valid. To accept what anyone believes because that's their truth. And so what can I say about it? We need to hang on to the only one who is the truth. Let him be supreme in your life and our life together as a community, his body. And if you're not a Christian, tonight would be a great night to become one. You could just tell Jesus, you are not just an option among many options. You are the supreme option. You are the true option. You and you only can show me God. And I want you to be the head of my life and of my community. I want you to be my truth. You tell them that tonight, and you're in. Or something like it. You don't have to use those. Those aren't magical words. You say whatever you want to say along those lines. And you're in. Welcome to the family. And if you did that, if you're going to do that tonight, then make sure you tell somebody before you leave. Hey, what that guy said to do? I did that. I guess we're siblings now. <laughs> and you will get at least a high five. <laughs> and together we will root ourselves in the rich soil of Jesus' supremacy. First over creation. First one to kick down the door of death so that all of us could pass through to life on the other side. First among his people as our leader. 
And first to offer his life to anyone who wants to be right with God and anyone who wants to be close to God. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Get ready for us to sing. We're going to respond with a song. Um, you, can, you can journal while we sing. We've got these things on the, your chair that have blank notes on the back if you want. You can write some stuff, some thoughts down on here, just some reflections if you want to. Um, you can sing along, of course, or you can just think. Just reflect on what you're hearing. Some of us, we need to stop letting Jesus be just an option in our lives. You need to make him your master. Maybe for you, he's not supreme for you yet, but he wants to be, and that's where true life is. Others of us, you need to remember that if Jesus overcame death, what can't he overcome for you? What can't he resurrect in your life? Take courage. He really is making all things new. And for others of us tonight, we can just celebrate the truth that we are going to keep building our lives on. But let's all of us put our roots down deeper and deeper into what makes Christ unique and supreme and worth building our whole lives on for the rest of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.